Okay, and the story begins. <laughs> Chapter 22 of Tanya, page 248-249. So the theme that we're discussing these days, the reality of God. We say God is one, which means it doesn't, there's not just one God as opposed to two, three, or four. God is one means that he is literally the only one. Everything that exists was created with his speech. And just like by us, one word is irrelevant or negligible to the ability to produce an infinite amount of words. Um, before we produced those words. So for God to produce one word, which is creation, or you could say ten words or ten utterances, which is creation, it's really negligible relative to its source, which is infinite. Or another analogy that's brought in other places in Tanya, in the second section in Tanya, you have the rays of the sun. And that ray of the sun is, is made as powerful as it is, as strong as it is, and as necessary as it is, from the sun's perspective, in the sun itself, that ray is totally negligible, is irrelevant. Hello, Lynn. Welcome. Hard drives itself here. He <laughs> knows how to get here. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> A men's club for a moment there. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. Okay. So the point is, as we're saying, everything is God. God is everything. Now, what we said last week, we elaborated a great deal on the idea that if God is everything, why don't we see Him? We introduced the concept of Tzimtzum. Tzimtzum means God hides Himself. He doesn't really hide Himself. From as far as he's concerned, he's very much present. But as far as we're concerned, he's very hidden. And the analogy that we gave was a teacher. A teacher has to condense information, has to hide information, and has to repackage the information so it's very concise and very clear. So if you were to, if you were the creator of a book, if you're the author of a book, and somebody told you, please sum, chap sum up chapter 3 for me in one sentence. I would, you, so, so I, as the recipient, as the student, would see that one sentence. But you, as the teacher, summarizing, what would you see? The entire chapter. You'd see the entire chapter incorporated in that one sentence. When we see creation, we see what God hid... Real, the reality is, from his perspective, it's all there. Nothing's changed. He is the same before creation. He is the same after creation. Nothing changed, as we say in Davani. The only thing that changed was the outer appearance. But if we examine that one line, we could ultimately get the whole depth and understand the whole chapter. If we examine existence and realize that, yes, he's hiding himself, but there's more than what meets the eye, eventually we can come to this reality. It won't be direct as God sees, it'll be indirect. Now, the question is... Now, now here's what he says in Tanya. Um, to page 249, middle of the page. 
the middle bold paragraph, and these diminishments, the tzimtzum, and the hiding of God's face, are so great and profound that they are able to cause impure things, klipas and shra'achra, to come into being and, and be created. God hides himself so well and so intensely to the point that existence that comes from him can even be antithetical to him. In other words, if God is the creator of everything, where does negativity come from? Him. That's how hidden he is. Where does klipa come from? Him, right? Klipa, as a reminder, is that shell. I, I think the speaker's being blocked. Okay, sorry. No, no, never mind. Speaker's on the other side. Okay, <laughs> we're good. Klipa it literally means a shell, a peel, a husk. But it's the example when you hold an orange, somebody says, what is this? You say orange, even though you don't see the orange, you see the peel. Right? The peel is making us delusional. Klipa is this delusional spirit. Klippa exists from God. That's how well he hides himself. The question is, why? What motivates God to hide himself? Or let, let, let's start before what motivates God to hide himself. What is the goal in hiding himself? What's the purpose? What's the ultimate purpose? There's benefits to it, which we'll discuss. But what is his intention in, in doing this? Well, I mean, his... His intention is for us to be able to uh, not overwhelm us and let us connect with him. Okay, to not overwhelm us, to give us opportunity, to give us choice, as well as we'll get into wouldn't soon. His, I'm just sort of guessing, but wouldn't his intention be to not have a direct effect? I mean, if you have your father standing over you when you're doing something, it's going to affect what you do. It, as opposed to so to you, give us independence yeah to, to because of the more independent we are then we're, we'll, we'll develop into the people that we're supposed to be rather than trying to look up and go is this okay is this okay is what i'm doing okay okay so so you're, you're both saying something very similar and you're both very correct but we have to <laughs> but, <laughs> but we have to take it a step further because at the end of the day, what's his goal? He, why does he want us to have this independence? What does he want us to accomplish with that independence? Well, In other words, him hiding himself gives us freedom to make choices, but what does he want us to choose? He wants, wants us to choose what's divine and what's right. Okay. And, and what's godly. And at the same time, he wants us to... Oh, is well, that why maybe, we have Maybe choice? this is... M most of us are impacted by this, but he wants us to... Uh, and encounter, maybe encounter is not quite the right word, things that are not divine and suppress them and and push them away. And, Bingo. And he wants us to, to exercise our freedom of choice to to, right to, to to embrace what is divine and to resist what and is to not know, divine. And to be able to see the difference. Okay, very good. Somebody looked at chapter 49. No, I did not. <laughs> okay, we're going to jump to chapter 49, uh, 49 page 60. Uh, I read the entire book this week. That's what <laughs> I used to tell my kids if there wasn't good people and bad people in the world, how could you know the difference? It's kind of a similar. Yeah, we're, we're going to jump to chapter 49, page 627. Oh man, we finished in the book. David, you still with us? Okay. No. Okay. No worries. I just want to make sure my phone isn't my. Can you hear my, okay? As long as you can hear us, you're good. Yes. Yes, I can hear. 
Okay. Okay. Do some water here? Sure. Thank you. Bubbly water, please. Hmm? The bubbly water. Oh, bubble? That's holding up John. <laughs> you can't have lemon, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, do you want the lemon? No. Thank you. Thank you, book. Okay. John would fall over. <laughs> Seltzer's holding him up. <laughs> okay. Page 627. Um, middle of the page. Where did my pen go? Here it is. Okay. The purpose of all of these diminishments, the purpose of Tsimtum, is to eventually create the senseless human body, without God hiding himself, there would just be a soul, there wouldn't be a body, so that the body will resist its self-gratifying -gratif inclinations and thereby subdue the sitra akhra. Subdue, sitra akhra is another word, a synonym for klipa. And since this struggle... The sitra akhra is another word for klipa. For, for klipa. the husk. For klipa, for, the, for this delusional... Husk. Negative spirit, this husk. Negative uh, husk that's kind of blinding our, jading our, our view of life. And since this struggle will take place in our spiritually dark world, there will be the advantage of light that comes from the darkness. God creates darkness, creates klipa, so we can bring light into it. Because before God created the world, there was just light. And if there's just light, what value does your light bring? If there's, wait, say that again. It can't if, make if, it. It if, doesn't make it lighter. If it's daytime <laughs> and you come, and you go outside with a candle, what are you accomplishing? Nothing. In the daytime, nothing. Nothing. So God created spiritual darkness, nighttime. He created. He created klipa. He created this delusional husk. He created the idea of lack, uh, the notion that we could have. There could be a world where so we're lacking so much clarity. All for the purpose of empowering us to subdue that negativity as well as bring in positivity. Light the darkness. Light up the darkness. Light up the night. Hanukkah is coming up. Perfect. Hanukkah, we light the candles once it's dark. Specifically when it's dark. In the Beit HaMikdash, when they would light the menorah daily, they would light it specifically in the daytime. Because it was a different purpose. But now that we're in exile, the whole purpose is to light up the night, light up the darkness. Now, what motivates God to hide himself? In other words, when he, by hiding himself, Tzimtzum, Tzimtzum creates... When God removes himself from this world on, a, on an apparent level, obviously he's very much present, which is a, the whole point in this court, in this class, this, this Tanya is to tell us how present he is. But when he removes his apparent presence, he's creating a huge window of opportunity. And that's really how Tanya sees it. Darkness is not, a, you know, exile. Gullus, as much as it is a punishment for, in, in, you know, the destruction of the base of English, as much as it is a, a punishment, it's opportunity. That's really our, our point here. Why did God give us this opportunity? What motivates him to give us this opportunity? Page 628. I have a question first. Yes. So, based upon what you had just said, I, I, would, um, I would translate that as in, we live in a world of darkness. But I don't necessarily think that's true. I mean, I, you know... I, 
but you, then you suggest there's opportunity. But I, but I, I think yeah, we're yeah. we're in a world of with light and darkness present, right? I mean, I the world you're what you're getting to is like, is, is like like God God is all light, but through seems to mean He's created this space, which maybe I misunderstood, but that space I think is you're referring to as darkness. Correct. But but that would imply that we are in the darkness. We are in the darkness. We're lighting it up. There's these. There's the hidden sparks, that as Kabbalah refers to it. But and, and we we bring out those sparks within the darkness and light up the world. I have a question. If God created light and the lack thereof in creation, it's not a. This darkness is not a response to us not being where we need to be unless he knew that in, in advance that we were going to screw up I, I mean I know I'm simplifying things but do well, you understand where I'm coming so, from? So our, yeah good question our behavior can contribute to light or contribute to the darkness we could contribute to either side of things like it says in the Talmud a person has to see themselves every person has to see themselves as a scale of half good and half bad and that one indeed could tip the scale and, all, and impact the world for, for good and for bad. What are we contributing to? Are we contributing to the light that's in the world, bringing out the sparks, illuminating the darkness? Or are we darkening the world through our behavior? But the darkness wasn't create, wasn't a result So is darkness a creation? Huh? Or is darkness a creation or is it an absence of light? That's it's, it's an absence of light, right? It, it's, it's a creation. Is it really? It's both. I mean, it's both. It has to be an absence of light because light will dispel darkness. Right. But it actually is a creation. God created dark. Uh, how is it phrased in 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 Horatius? How is the, how is it phrased that uh, on the day that he created light and how is it? it, it the, okay, it's it's a it's a okay, difficult. My my phone is playing games. You still there, David? Oh, okay. Somebody was calling me. No, no worries. It, it's a challenging, it's a difficult subject, but there's a big debate in Jewish, amongst Jewish philosophers throughout the ages. Is darkness an absence of light? Is darkness a creation? And we're going to get... Yeah. Well, we're having trouble with the connection several times. Poor John, you went away, David. Okay. Okay, he's back. John's back. John, you there? Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, an absence of light. For <laughs> <laughs> okay, an absence of electrons. Anyway. Okay, so, so there is a discussion: is darkness considered to be an absence of light? Is darkness a creation? And there's a lot of relevance to the discussion, and we are going to get to it. Probably oh, not tonight. Oh, okay. So, but, so hold on to it. Okay. And so, the answer, in short, is yes. What? This is, this is... <laughs> What was the question? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. This is difficult. It's difficult to accept that that um, that what's left after the Tsimsumim is nothing but darkness until we do something to illuminate. But, but again, we said God created that klipa. That's what we said back on, on back in in our chapter in twenty two. The Tsimsum, God removing it, or his apparent presence is so strong 
to the point that Klippa, something antithetical to, exi- to his existence, can exist. Can. Or does exist. Klippa okay. exists. Okay. Right? There's, there's, there's evil in the world. There's not only evil, not, not only evil in the, in the conventional sense, there's things that God doesn't like. Hmm. You know, eating pork is Klippa. God created it, but it doesn't reveal his presence, even though it comes from him. Right. No, I mean, I just... In other words, God negativity. Negativity is a creation from God, just as positivity is. Yeah. So you're actually going to answer my question down the road? About darkness? No, about whether... Darkness is, darkness is a creation, or is it an absence of light? We're going to answer your is question. It, is it a result of our behavior? So, 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 so we... <laughs> We, we, we shouldn't dwell, but I'll... I'll because we're, we'll likely get, get to it. But I'll, oh, yeah, I'll, look how far we've come. I know. <laughs> but but it, it just seems like, okay, then if... If, if, if all of us here were to simply just stop all of, all, all of the good and divine things that we do, the default position would be complete darkness. That's it's hard. It's possible. That's hard to de- that's hard to it's hard it's to accept. It, it, it's it's I mean it it look so that's on a global sense. Sure. And to make that a little bit more acceptable in our minds to understand that a little bit clearly a great analogy for that is ourselves. What's our default selves? Our animal soul or our godly soul? Um, well, I I, I I would like to think it's somewhere in between. The default is the animal soul. That's, that's how we that's have to the work default. so hard to have our divine soul and to have it evolve because if, if the minute we drop our guard, the minute we aren't doing see, the mitzvahs see, and aren't davening and aren't doing those things, we're reverting back to... It's more of a choice so, to do so, something so, good so, than, so I, than to I, I do something... Saying, but, but like when you think about the concepts we've learned, we learned about the, the tzadik. His, the tzadik's default position is pure divine, pure light. Or Russia, pure darkness. Benini, we our default should be somewhere in between. That's just the way I'm kind is, of thinking about it. Right. But. It, is um, ever in the middle? Okay. So in terms of behavior, for a bainini, maybe the default will be will be the positive. But thoughts. But yeah, in terms in terms of thought, speech, yeah. and action, outer expression, the bainini for the most part, you know, that's who's in control. The divine soul. He's only doing things that the divine soul would agree with. But in terms of how he thinks and feels, lusts. You know, it's very natural to lust things that he shouldn't be lusting. He's not a tzaddik. He's very, his animal soul is very much present, and that's why it's a struggle. And, it's a, and, and this is the same thing with the world at large. The default of the world... Is she here? Yeah. Yeah, must be here. The default of the world is the animal soul, is, is, is Klippa's negativity. Because God hides himself. Bringing in godliness into the world, or bringing godliness into ourselves, it must be intentional. To illustrate this idea further, we go back to chapter 9 of Tanya. In chapter 9 of Tanya, where is the animal soul primarily located? Left side. Left side in the heart, right? Where is the godly soul primarily located? In the brain. In the brain, in the mind. The animal soul is instinctual. That's natural. It's just what happens. The divine soul, the godly soul, is intentional. It has to be a choice. So, it's, so the animal soul is reactionary. Yeah, it, it's like so an animal. That, so that would totally make sense that it's default. Yeah, 
Exactly. Sorry about your dad. Hmm? I'm just thinking of sorry about your dad. Oh, thanks. Now, ultimately, the reason why God made this default, the default negativity, it, just by removing himself. If you remove light, dark comes in, right? But why would he remove this light? Why would he remove himself empty. on an apparent level, create this empty space? Now, he's always there. But why would he remove the appearances if he's make it apparent? Why would he hide himself? Continues in this chapter, in chapter 49. On, on the bottom of the page and, and the top of 629, we're not going to read the whole thing inside, but basically God loves us. And he wants us to exist. And if he didn't remove himself, we couldn't exist on a physical level. And if we couldn't exist on a physical level, we couldn't accomplish what we need to accomplish on a physical level, subduing the negativity and, and, and elevating the positivity. It's out of great love. And the Tanya continues. If God is willing to be so humble as to set himself aside so we can exist, because if he exists, we can't, we need to reciprocate. Re, reciprocate. Re, tongue twister. Reciprocate. There we go. Okay, everybody together. Reciprocate. <laughs> we need to reciprocate. Did I get it? Yeah. And demonstrate that same humility. Is that the light? And light just as he sets aside his light to allow darkness so we can exist, we need to set aside our darkness so our light can exist, our soul can exist. Think about that for one second while I make sure the baby's okay. <laughs> Is that this let it let go of all of it to connect to God? You right. think that's it? This one? Let it go of all of it to connect to God? Not from the soul to the flesh, but the next one. Cause he had a yeah, I mean, if you put it in the context of the sentence before that. Right. Yeah. It's cool. Okay, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, does that, does that make sense? Yes. God loves us so much, he's willing to be that humble for us. He wants mankind to exist. And we have to reciprocate. I shouldn't put myself in a position where I have to use words I can't pronounce, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and demonstrate the same thing. You know, sometimes there's things that, you, you know, we, we need a little bit of a serious nefesh sometimes in Hebrew. A little bit of sacrifice. God sacrificed his existence so we can exist. We need to sacrifice our existence so he can be present in this world and exist. In, in a later part of Tanya, the second section of Tanya, where it elaborates more on these concepts in greater depth, the first section of Tanya that we're learning about is our relationship with God on a personal level, and we're touching upon the idea of the relationship with a on a global level. The second section is all about God's relationship on a global level, on a global level, the world. Must be the weather. Do you think? I don't know. <clears throat> what are you doing over there, John? Nothing. <laughs> 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 and in that section of Tanya, in chapter seven, the second section of Tanya, which talks about Imuna, talks about faith. 
It's called Shar Ha'ichur Vimuna, the gate of faith, of unity and faith. And this is text one. Text one on our sheets here. I'm going to jump to the second paragraph. Um, it is known to. Uh, uh, let's get, let's get a volunteer. Who's our Who's our volunteer for paragraph one? Mike. Sure. Second or second paragraph. Text John's one. Gonna stand up. <laughs> Mike, Mike beat you to it. Uh, text one, second paragraph. All right. It is known to all that the purpose of the creation of the world is for the sake of the revelation of his kingdom. May he be blessed, for there is no king without a nation. The word am, nation, a related, etym here's another tongue twister, etymologically to the word amemot, concealed, dimmed, for they are separate entities, distinct and distant from the level of the king. For even if the king had very many sons, the name kingdom would not apply to them, nor even to nobles alone. Only in a multitude of people is the glory of the king. Okay, thank you. That was very nice. If, if God didn't hide himself, he would never be able to be a king over us. He'd be able to, he would only be a father of us. He would only be our father. He wouldn't be our king. On, high, on the high holidays, we say, Avinu Malkenu. Our father, He's our, our father and our king. And there's both aspects to the relationship. From the soul's perspective, he's our father. Because our soul's part and parcel of him as a child is, part, is a piece of their father. But from the body perspective, where there's, where there's distance, from the, from the body's perspective, where there's that distance, he's like a king. You can't be a king without a nation. You can't be a king without an independent, distant Existence. If a king has hundreds of kids, hundreds of close acquaintances and relatives, he's not a king. He's just a patriarch. A, a king, in order to, for there to be king, there has to be that distance. Um, on Rosh Hashanah, we proclaim God as our king. We're celebrating that distance that he gives us. It's the, uh, we're celebrating the, the power that we have, not just in our souls, but in our bodies. To make independent choices to do what, what, what he needs in this world. This is all just to illustrate the purpose and value of God hiding himself. Creating that independence as a king so we're not just like children. Right? Children are always dependent on their parents. Um, at least emotion, or, or not, I shouldn't say always, but more a, a king, a, a nation is very independent of the king. They follow the king's directives, but that relationship is not there. Which leaves opportunity to reveal God in this world. Can't happen if he's not hiding, right? Can't happen if he's just right in front of us, if he's right here. Okay, we jump back to page 251. Where the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, says that Sitra Achra, impurity, klipa, these are things which God finds hateful, abominable, abominable, abominable. Say it again. That was good. Abominable. I can't do that. 
Yeah, he doesn't like him. He doesn't, he like, doesn't him. like him. Detestable. <laughs> Detestable. Okay. He, <laughs> he just doesn't like him. No snowman's coming by him. No, no abandonable. Now, God doesn't like Klippa. He doesn't like that which is hiding him. He hates it. And as we said in chapter 49, he did it because as much as he hates it, he loves us and wants us to exist. And by creating or by hiding himself to the point that there's such a strong antithetical force against him, what he gives us is, as you mentioned earlier, the power of choice. And this is what he says in our chapter. Where? Um, this is page 251, the middle paragraph. Everything's in the middle these days. The middle paragraph. He does this, yeah, only to punish the wicked and to give good reward to the righteous. In other words, to make our decisions meaningful since the consequences of our actions will be a result of our free choice. And God derives pleasure from those who, who suppress sitra akhra, who suppress negativity, who suppress klipa. When we have an opportunity, the oppor and the opportunities are great, are many, when we have the opportunity to do something negative, to do something in line with the, with the animal soul, to do something in line with something God highly does not prefer, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> he cre we have to remember, it's important to remember that He created that opportunity. Because he's expect he, expect he, he, he trusts us to make good choices. We have the opportunity to eat non-kosher. He created that opportunity. He created the whole notion of non-kosher, something which he dislikes, which is klipa, which hides his essence. And I use kosher as an example, but think of anything. 365 negative commandments, right? 365 things that God explicitly does not like. It could be in relationships, right? It could be the, the notion of lush and hara, talking bad about someone. That's something negative that hides God. He created it. He created 365 of them? One for every day? One for every day of the year, oh, right? Oh, man. That's a lot. And when we, ref we... It's important to reflect that, you know, take a moment and think about, wait a minute, God created this opportunity. Why? So we wouldn't do it. So we don't do it. Because when we subdue it, it causes him pleasure, and it brings him into this world even more than he ever was. It makes him more comfortable in this world. If he hates it, in other words, you may ask, if God hates Klippa, just don't create it. Right? Where's the challenge there? Just don't create it. <laughs> but he, he felt the need to create it. He felt that need. There, there, there is a need of Klippa. Klippa is needed. God says, I hate it, but like we said in chapter 49, it's not about me, it's about you guys. God loves us. And I'll do something that makes me very uncomfortable for you. I'll be vulnerable with you. And God says, I'm asking that you're vulnerable with me. I'm asking that you'll do things that make, often will make you uncomfortable, but you'll do it for me because I did it for you. It's a powerful perspective to have. It's a very meaningful perspective to have. It definitely takes away a lot of the inner tension that, that mitzvahs present. Because it's a relationship. And when we see our relationship with God as a relationship, 
not just as why is this Judaism so demanding it, it definitely it releases that tension relationships often require vulnerability relationships require sacrifice but relationships are deep meaningful and are so important not just psychologically but important even it's important because it's objectively important God found it God says it's important To illustrate how distant or, or how, how difficult it is, for, um, as it were, not in a literal sense, but how much he does, dislikes Klepa. Klepa is referred to as Elohim Acherim, other gods. And the word Acherim comes from the word Acher, behind. And the Tanya gives the analogy. If you were to give some a gift to somebody <coughs> you liked, you face them, you look them in the eye, and you hand it to them. If you weren't so interested in giving it to them, you might not look them in the eye. If you really resent giving it to them, you have to give it to them, but you don't want to give it to them. You won't even look at them. You have your back facing it, facing them, and you just throw it at them. And it's behind your back. Elohim acherim. It's other gods that are coming from the back. They're getting vitality from God, but from behind him. In a way where, as if to say, I don't really want to create you. I have to create you. I have to create negativity because I love these people and I'm giving them a mission. That's some serious body language. <laughs> Yeah, that's some serious body, body language. language. God's body language. <laughs> okay, we'll jump to 253. If everything is God, <coughs> if everything is God, everything, not only the table, as we were saying, but even the most dark, the darkness, negativity, evil, or even non-evil, but just klipa, this husk that prevents us from seeing him is him, right? Like we gave the analogy, the halachic analogy last week. For a kippah, a head covering, you can use, you can't use your own hand. Why can't you use your own hand? Because you can't hide yourself. God can't really hide himself. God's hiding himself, so he's not really hiding. Because everything is him. Even the kippah is him. But if he could hide himself so well to the point that it appears as if there's something external in kippah and antithetical to him, but everything's him. What would constitute denying his existence? What would constitute idolatry or heresy? Doing something other than what he wants us to be doing. Doing something other than he wants us to be doing. Okay, what that, else? Or saying that he doesn't there that he's not really there. Saying that he's not really there, okay. But he, but it goes even more than that. If he's everything then every, oh, to say God exists but I also exist. This table also exists. That's heresy. That's idolatry. Because idolatry or heresy means, or, or the other way around, real faith means, I don't just believe God exists, 
I believe that God's existence is relevant to every aspect of creation. So I don't just know that there is a God somewhere out there, but I believe that God is part is part of every fiber of my being and fiber of existence. And if that's the case, anything that's going to negate that is idolatrous, is heresy. And that's why, let's take a look on 253, the, the third to third or fourth to last paragraph. That's why our sages, page 253, that's towards the bottom, that's why our sages of blessed memory in the Talmud said that an inflated ego, arrogance, is equivalent to actual idolatry. Arrogance and idolatry, this is what the Talmud says. Arrogance and idolatry are equivalent to one another. Why? What does arrogance mean? Effectively, you're nullifying you're God. Creating your own, you're creating your own space where God cannot be. And if God is, if God is everywhere, and your ego is pushing God out of that everywhere, effectively, you're yeah. denying his existence. And this is what Abraham was fighting for, not just that there is one God, but that God is one. And that's why it was so controversial in his time. You mean I don't exist? <laughs> Let's take this outside, right? They threw him in the furnace. Don't tell me I don't exist. <laughs> of course I exist. They rather believe in many gods, and just like there's many gods, I'm, I'm one of them. Right? You, you said it very well. This is exactly what the Tanya says. What? I, I heard that ego actually stands for something. What does ego stand for? Edging God out, okay. I've that before. Very good. Good job. The, the, the second to last paragraph on 253, for the basis and root of idolatry, in other words, the initial error of perception which leads to an inflated ego, is the perception of being an independent entity, separate from God's sacred presence. To believe in God is not just to believe that He exists. To believe in God is to believe that everything is, his, is a part of His existence. And if I'm arrogant, I'm edging God out, right? My ego is edging him out, and there's a space where I'm saying he is not, and although I believe he exists, his existence is irrelevant to me, at least on some level, and on a, on a very fine level, that's considered idolatrous. It's heresy. In the wrong crowd, those are fighting words. Yeah. What? In the wrong crowd, those are fighting words. Yes. What are fighting words? That, that you know, because there's plenty of uh, Jews who are atheists, right? And to, to, to say that, you know, it's heretical for them to think like that. Just the word heresy gets people in a... Gets people uh, upward. Even, not not yeah. even the atheist, just the atheist, but the whole coexist movement. The whole, the, everybody is the same and... Everybody together, they'd be like, "Woo!" They aren't going to be in the Tanya class, though. Well, that's why they they, they need it more, maybe more than anybody. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, it, you know it, it. It's good to be in a class where I could say it like it is, and not. <laughs> and then if they hear me, at least it's not live. It's on the recording. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. 
So, so here's a story that happened. <laughs> They'll have to take it outside. When the Hasidic movement, you know, as we've been saying, the the, the essence of the, of Hasidus is simcha. The essence of Hasidus is bittel. Right? It's not about me. And this is why. It all comes together. Why is bittel, chachma, right? The chachma of the souls we've been elaborating on in earlier chapters so important. Why is bittel so important? It's not just that it's not about me. I don't even exist. There's more. There's more to my existence, right? There, there was. There's a joke they say in the yeshiva world. Somebody once asked a student of the brisk community, where they're very academic, and they'll take one line of Talmud, one line of Rambam, and they'll and they'll analyze it and rip it apart. So somebody said to the, the a brisker. How do you know God exists? So he pulls out books. <laughs> look in the Talmud on this line. Look at the Rambam over here. Look at my money. Like, of course God exists. They asked a, a Breslover Chassid. Breslover Chassidim. They love God and they, they go into the forest and they meditate for hours and hours and talk to God. So he says, what do you mean? I just spoke to God. <laughs> of course he exists. And they asked the Lubavitcher, a Chabad Chassid. How do you know God exists? So he says, what do you mean? How do you know you exist? <laughs> You're getting it backwards. <laughs> and th that's the essence of, of Chabad Chassidus. Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> no worries. Th that's the essence of Chabad Chassidus. It's bitl, it's simcha. The reaction to this, the, the reaction to this is, is simcha. So here's the story. The story is about 250 years ago, maybe closer to 300, uh, less than 300 years ago. The Magid of Mezrich. The Magid of Mezrich. Lived, he was a Magid. lived in Mezrich. He was... How can you a, pronounce that and not be able to pronounce I, the You think about that sometimes when he says some of these words. I'm like... The Rabbi of Mezrich. The, 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 Magid, the Magid of Mezrich. 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 Okay. <laughs> really, it okay. is kind of funny that you can't do some of these really common everyday words and you can do these other his, Hebrew his, words. His Russian or wherever everything. that's from is better. Oh, better. He's got the accent it's in the whole too much time in Yeshitna. So the Baal Shem Tov pioneers the Hasidic movement. The Baal Shem Tov passes away and it's time for a successor. His successor was the Magid of Mezrich, Rabbi Dovber, known as the Magid of Mezrich, from the town of Mezrich. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but apparently the Baal Shem Tov's either son or son-in-law took over and actually was his successor for a year. A year later, on the yard side of the Baal Shem Tov, he had a dream from the Baal Shem Tov. He said, you need to hand this over to the Magid, it's not for you. And at Eferbring, and the Bashamta son took off his trimal, handed it, put it on the Magid's head, and said, "You're on deck. You're you're up." The Magid took. The Magid was the personal mentor and teacher of the Alter Rebbe, of the author of the Tanya. He was the personal mentor and teacher of many different Hasidic branches. So there was the Bashamta who initiated Hasidus, pioneered Hasidus. The Magid went out and preached, or actually, he he. The Magid was his successor. The Magid had dozens of students who he sent out to various places to disseminate these teachings, which is the joy and the bittal and the soul and all these different things that we're learning about. And each teacher had their own style. And the Al-Tarebbe, who was one of the Magid students, formulated his style, which was the Chabad approach. 
approach uh, where the faith is not something we just accept but has to become part of our mind and we really have to get down to the nitty-gritty and understand these things. There was a, what's known as a misnagid, an opposer to chassidus. And that mean, mean, that's the other word? Misnagdim? Yeah, misnagdim, yeah. yeah so okay. misnagdim is plural, misnagid is, is singular. There's a lot of pushback when chassidus was created, what was created, was, was um, introduced. And there was the group of misnagdim, mitnagdim, which were opposers. And this guy was incredibly arrogant. And what he would do is he sat in the corner in a, in a study hall in the synagogue by himself. And he studied and studied and studied, which is a beautiful thing in, in many contexts. But he really let it go to his head. There is no greater scholar than me, said he. <laughs> he was very is that, impressed. Is that the gay, gay no, 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 it wasn't. He, he was very, I'm not sure what his name is, because when I read the story, his name is, no, wasn't, I don't believe his name was documented. He was very impressed with himself, and he saw himself as somebody. all that in a bag of chips, as they say. He was, he was the, you know, he's going to be, he's going to make it big in, in, the, in the rabbinic world. Very arrogant. And... He hears that the Magid is coming to town for an extended period of time, not too far from him. He says, you know what? I hear a lot of good things about, and, and, and special things about the Magid. I'm going to join him for Shabbos. And if this Magid can recognize my greatness, he's probably a good rabbi and I'll, I'll stick around. <laughs> That's what he says. Holy cow. He's sticking around and does not really get much attention. He's expecting, you know, I don't even have a stender at the front of the shul. Where's it? <laughs> What's going on here? He's not, he's not getting what he expected. And towards the end of Shabbos, he's like, I don't think I'm coming back here. They don't know what true greatness is. They don't get it. <laughs> and they're at the, the third meal. The third Shabbos meal takes place after Mincha. Shalosh Seudot, right? Third meal. And the Magid turns to Reb Zusha of Anapoli. Reb Zusha was a contemporary of the Alter Rebbe, the author of Tanya, and his uh, his um, endorsement is actually he actually has a, a letter of endorsement to the ta- of the ta- endorsing the Tanya in the beginning of the book. If you, if you flip back, you'll see it. The Magid turns to Reb Zusha and he says, "Reb Zusha, share a word, share a dvar Torah, share something." So Reb Zusha quotes the verse in text two. If you take out your sheets here. If you pull out your sheets here, text two, he quotes a verse from Yirmiyahu from Jeremiah. Can a man hide in secret places, and I should not see him, says God. Which on a literal level is basically God is saying, anywhere you hide, I will see you. Nothing's hidden from God. The way Reb Zusha translated it, you know, where you put the comma and things, are in Torah there was no punctuation in the actual Torah. So things can be very fluid, and there's many ways of interpreting things. And the way he interpreted it, interpreted it, the way he placed the comma was like this. Can a man hide, and it makes more sense in Hebrew, it's easier to appreciate in Hebrew, but we'll do our best. Can a man hide in secret places, and I, if a person hides in a place, like this guy was doing, secluding himself, and becoming an I, becoming all arrogant, inflating his ego, should not see him, says God. God's not going to see him. God won't see him. 
and it hit this guy so hard. I don't know if Rebzusha looked at him or not, or Rebzusha even knew. I don't know if Rebzusha was intentionally directing this comment to him or not. But he's, he felt, okay, I get it. Wow, I need to stick around. <laughs> I have a lot to learn. He sticks around for a few weeks. A couple weeks later, he's there for Shabbos again. And it's the third meal. And the Magids turns to Rebzusha. Rebzusha, <coughs> share an insight. Rebzusha quotes the same verse in text 2, but this time reads it a little bit differently. Can a man hide in secret places, and I should not? If a person hides and secludes himself, but his goal is, I should not, he's not becoming an I, it makes more sense in Hebrew again, but he's getting rid of the I, getting rid of the ego. Sees him, says God. God will see him. When he was displaying arrogance, Rebzusha got up and said, If you're becoming an eye and it's all about you, God doesn't see you. As we said, God can't dwell when there's arrogance. It's idolatrous. But if it's not about you, it's about your purpose in this world and there's something bigger than yourself, God totally sees you. And as we actually say in our chapter, if we turn to page 254, um, the third to last paragraph. For as we've mentioned above in chapter 6, in chapter 19, supernal holiness only rests on something which is surrendered to him. If we're arrogant, if we have ego, well, God can't be there because the essence of God is everything and if we're rejecting that everything, that's not him. To illustrate this idea that everything is God, which by the way, if everything is God and everything is Him, and He's the essence of all existence, He doesn't just exist as God in heaven looking down on earth, He's everything. And if He's everything, I forgot where I was going with this. In His presence, everything is considered like zero. But, but here's the story. And uh, David, you asked what's happening this Monday. So this is where it all comes together. The 19th of Kislev. So, so, so when the Altar Rebbe, you know, when, when the Magid started teaching Chassidus, he recruited the Altar Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, sends out the author of the Tanya to disseminate these teachings to the world, which was a shock of their life. And he received a lot of kickback. And the Alter Rebbe suffered greatly from the Misnagdim to the point that, and, and again, it wasn't politics. They, they were coming from a good place. They, they, didn't, they didn't get it. They literally didn't get it. It wasn't, it wasn't political. It really wasn't. It was, it was spiritual, and they had good intentions. No hard feelings. <laughs> it's, it's not like Jews fighting these days. They, 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 they would have debates, and they had, it was the Vilna Gaon, who's the head of Lithuanian Jewry in Vilna, was one of the heads of, was very influential in the opposition. 
And by the way, the entire debate between the Vilna Gaon and the Alter Rebbe was basically boils down to what it says in Tanya. How literal is Tzimtzum? When Kabbalah says that God hid himself, is that literal or is that figurative? And, and Tanya maintains clearly that it's figurative because God is everywhere. And that's really where the whole debate comes. And it's a whole story for another time. But the, the reason why I say this is that it was, it was merely philosophical and it definitely got out of hand. Where was I going with this? <laughs> Hold on, just give me a second. Well, you're saying to me that David had a question, right? So, the, the Misnagdim didn't want the Al-Tadeba to continue. So what they did was, they told the, the Russian Empire, I don't know, the Tsar. The Tsar. Yeah, they informed on, on the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe would send money to Israel, helping the Jews in Israel. Israel was under the Turkish Empire. And he exposed the Alter Rebbe and said, look, he's supporting Turkey. They came, they put the Alter Rebbe in prison, they took him away. It's a whole story for another time, and, and we'll hear more about the story Monday night. The Alter Rebbe was released from prison the 19th of Kislev. The 19th of Kislev, which is coming up this Monday, and every year it's a huge celebration in Chabad because it represents not just something that happened, but it represents the whole initiation of Chassidus. That's when the Tanya came out, it's, and it's a very meaningful and special day. It's considered to be like a Yom Tov. In Chabad circles, you'll see everybody's wearing their Shabbos attire. And there, there was a Chassid of the Altar Rebbe, Rebbe Isaac Hamler. Isaac Humler was on one of the Yutes Kislev celebration for Brangans years later. So he got inspired and he gets up and he's in this inspiration. He's in this moment of inspiration and he says, you know who was freed on the 19th of Kislev? It wasn't the Alter Rebbe. Because the Alter Rebbe is a Rebbe and a Rebbe lives on a deeper, on a higher plane. He's in prison, he's, here, he's doing his mission in this world, and, and he's not that affected. You know, physically, but spiritually, he's not that affected. You know who was released, redeemed, on the 19th of Kislev? We were. He says, God. Oh. Because until the 19th of Kislev, until the Tanya came out, until Hasidus was really disseminated, what was God? Some man in heaven with a long beard threatening to throw lightning bolts at us. That's not God, right? Now we know what God really is. God is very much a part of our lives. God is a relationship. God is a reality. He's not in heaven. He's everywhere. And our job is to reveal Him. He said God was redeemed. God was revealed on the 19th of Kislev. God was released from prison because of the Tanya. Because we know these things from the Tanya. And we'll, we'll end off with an insight from the Talmud related to this idea. Text 3 on our uh, sheets here. Um, who'd like to be our volunteer for text 3? I can do it. Okay, go for it. Uh, Rabbi Hia and Rabbi Shimon Bar Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi were sitting outside the house of study immersed in Torah learning. One of them began and said, One who prays must direct his gaze downward while praying. 
as it is stated by God with regard to the holy temple. And my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. When the divine presence rests in the Eretz Yisrael, and one must direct his gaze to the sacred land when praying. And one of them said he must direct his eyes upward, because it is stated, let us lift our hearts with our hands towards God in heaven. In the meantime, Rabbi Yishmael, son of Rabbi Yose, came beside them. He said to them, What are you dealing with? They said to him, With prayer, as we are debating the proper posture for prayer. He said to them, My father, Rabbi Yose, said as follows, one who prays must direct his eyes downward and his heart upward in order to fulfill both of these verses. Okay, thank you. So in the Talmud, there's a halachic debate. Do I look upward when I, pl- when I pray? When I, do I look downward when I pray? And the conclusion, and this is the actual halacha cited in Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch mentions this uh, portion of the Talmud. And the conclusion is when we pray... Our eyes are downward, but our heart is upward. And the way Hasidic, there's a Hasidic teaching that teaches our heart is upward, realizing that there's a God who is way beyond us. Our heart emotionally, we must feel the awesomeness of God, how great He is. But our eyes have to be downward. We must see Him in our life every day. We must see Him practically. While our heart is upward and he's way beyond, we have to see how he's so involved and so relevant and so part of us. Our eyes have to be downward, which is ultimately the goal of prayer, to incorporate these ideas that we're studying emotionally into our lives and integrate them emotionally into our lives and connecting more with that soul that can perceive this. It's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Yes.